I'm Gabrielle Roberts, and I'm joined with my co-host Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. Today's interviewee is Barbara Letalian, who is formerly the Director of Government Affairs for the Treasurer and Receiver General of Massachusetts, as well as a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives representing the 18th Essex District. Thank you for coming on to the show and taking the time to answer our questions. So I guess first, oh, okay, thank you. Yep. Um, so I guess first off, uh, well, the third district is crowded this year, so why are you running? I'm running because I'm the only person in this race that has been a, a progressive woman legislator over the last 15 years. I've served in the House, I serve in the Senate currently, and I've served on the Andover School Committee. Uh, and I'm the only one that really has the experience on environmental policies, civil rights, education, health care, seniors. Um, and, you know, I, as I said, currently serve in the Senate and I'm hoping to bring my advocacy skills uh, down to Washington on behalf of people in the 3rd Congressional District. So what's your top priority as a candidate? If you could get only one thing done... What would that be? I think it's critically important that we ensure that everyone has full access to health care. There are millions of people in this country who do not have health care. Even having a health insurance card does not necessarily mean you have access to health care. You know, I was in the House uh, about 10 years ago when we voted on what was then called Romney Care. Uh, we thought if we just insured close to 100% of people here in Mass, all our problems would be answered. We didn't realize that we, uh, you know, that if people can't afford their co-pays, uh, their monthly premiums to pay for insurance, the deductibles they have to reach before insurance covers things, uh, and also the cost of prescription drugs and other uh, out-of-pocket costs, that if those aren't covered, and they're not affordable, then people really can't access the health care services that they need. And um, I started working on this because of my own son, Rudy, who's now 28 years old, who has autism. Uh, I paid my insurance premiums for my four kids. My two girls with asthma could get their treatment, and my son with autism could get no treatment out of the, you know, out of the insurance system. And so I knew that was wrong, and I set out to fight to ensure that kids like him could get the insurance coverage that they needed here in Massachusetts, both private insurance and low-income mass health people. Uh, but I really believe we need to come up with a national health care system that is a Medicare for all, what some people call single-payer or universal care. Uh, I think that's what's needed desperately here in this country. Because if you don't have your health, very few other things you're able to do in life. So you just mentioned that you favor single-payer health care. So the Affordable Care Act originally examined single-payer health care, but didn't follow that path. So ACA was somewhat of a compromise. So what's wrong with that compromise? Is this letting perfect be the enemy of the good? You know, I think that had we been able to do some of the things like allowing for a public option for people, uh, we probably could have covered... Uh, a whole lot more people at a much lower cost nationally. You know, where we're at now is we have the remnants that were working well within the ACA, we are rolling back. 
things like ensuring that people who have um, a pre-existing condition are covered with no questions asked. Uh, President Trump is trying to roll that back. Um, you know, we are trying to move away from the individual mandate, which is what helps keep this thing afloat because you have to have relatively well people paying in as well to balance out uh, what's needed when folks become sick. Um, again, I, I just think that we need to aspire to and work towards a single-payer health care system as most other developed countries around the world have. And included in that needs to be a unified prescription drug program. All right, related to healthcare, New England is a huge focus area for biotechnology, but there's been some ethical controversy over embryonic stem cells, CRISPR gene editing, GMOs, replaceable organs, etc. What are your thoughts on pushing forward these initiatives in Massachusetts? Should we slow down or stop for ethical or religious reasons, or should we go full speed ahead? because of all the benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, you gave a long list of items. Uh, I will focus on one, which is embryonic stem cells. Uh, back when I was in the house about 10 years ago, uh, gosh, maybe a little longer, because it was during the George Bush administration, um, there were concerns about not allowing for uh, further broadening uh, the line of embryonic stem cells, and it was a big controversial issue nationally and in Massachusetts, and I voted thinking that we ought to allow for the expansion of stem cell research. I think that uh, there's great promise there to help people uh, with debilitating illness and disease, and that we ought to be uh, using the science uh, for good to help help make life easier for people. Uh, what about CRISPR gene editing? Um, I'm not an expert on that, so I'm not going to comment on that one. What else did you want to know about? How about replaceable organs? Um, you know, I have a sister who had suffered from both kidney failure and had diabetes for over 40 years, so her pancreas was not working for that entire time. I saw the toll that that took on her life. Uh, she is in her late 50s now, but is unable to walk. Um, has had strokes, you know, bleeding behind the eyes, uh, the bones in her foot and the ankle have collapsed. I mean, just massive systemic damage from, uh, you know, the lack of her pancreas and her kidneys working. And she, later in life, had a dual transplant, a kidney and pancreas transplant, but had to wait for quite some time in order to get that. There are oftentimes issues around compatibility uh, in terms of blood type and etc., to avoid the rejection of those organs. Um, you know, in an ideal world, we would have enough people signing up to, uh, to offer to donate their organs, and I certainly have done that. Um, but I would say that given that we have a shortage and we have people dying that are on wait lists for liver replacements and uh, kidney replacements, etc., that I think that we should look at whether or not we can um, assist with, uh, you know, with replicating um, vital organs. Uh, I'm so sorry. I hope she's okay. So, on yes. Yep. She, you know, she's no longer diabetic. Uh, she no longer has to go multiple times a week for dialysis. But my point is that 
the years and years of damage, you know, the 40 years of damage uh, to her system, uh, you know, really has made a, a very serious impact on her quality of life. And if there's a way that we can expand science to improve the quality of life for others so that they don't have to be robbed of so much of their health, I'm all for it. France uh, recently changed their organ donor regulations from opt-in to opt-out. So should we change our organ donor regulations? I mean, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, I, I think that we ought to broaden the pool of folks who can, uh, you know, who are willing to uh, be considered to have their organs donated. Um, one of the things that I worked on here in Massachusetts was that we would not allow folks with Down syndrome and other intellectual and developmental disabilities to receive donated organs, and we had to go in and work to try to change that law uh, because folks were being prevented from being able to receive organs. So I'm all for uh, you know making it as uh, easy as possible and to have as broad a pool available as possible of donated organs. We can't really take them with us, right? We're not, they're of no use to us once we've passed on. So I'm a big believer in sharing what we have and paying it forward. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your short career as a Fox News guest? (laughs) Sure. Well, I'm literally sitting in the chair I sat in that morning as I speak with you in my campaign office. Uh, I had a a communications person who had worked for Ann Kirkpatrick when she served as a congresswoman from Arizona. Uh, She had since left being in Congress to actually uh, take on John McCain for the Senate. She was unsuccessful, Uh, but he had not worked for her for close to a decade. He received a call from Fox and Friends, which is sort of a morning show. Uh, that Fox puts on in the early morning, asking that Anne come on to sort of fit the Fox narrative of being, uh, you know, in favor of ICE and all the things that are going on at the borders and and with the separation of families and all of that. Um, And so we saw an opportunity to potentially speak truth to power directly to President Trump because he watches Trump's favorite show. And he tweets about it quite often. So we saw this as a unique opportunity to break through and provide an alternate point of view. Uh, We weren't sure if we would be able to ultimately get on the show or for how long I would get to speak. I had prepared remarks and I was able to go about a minute and a half to basically say that uh, what's happening with border control and with the notion of, you know, ripping children from their parents' arms placing any human being in a cage, um, having, you know, young people as young as three years old have to defend themselves in a court uh, around uh, deportation proceedings, moving people all over the country, uh, not reuniting them with their families is inhumane, immoral, and uh, illegal, in my opinion. And so I spoke about that for as long as I could. Uh, The folks on the other end seemed ill-prepared to engage in conversation. They were convinced the problem had been solved and gone away. And I just continued to speak to say that that is not the case and that there are still troubling effects and that the trauma that will be felt by those children and their families will continue for years to come. 
And as a mother of four children, particularly a child with autism, I'm just deeply offended and deeply wounded that my country would do this to people. So you believe in sanctuary cities. The Republicans think immigration is an issue they can win on, mostly through fear. Fear of Mm -hmm. job loss, crime, change. And sadly, this resonates with a lot of Americans. Given that Republicans use it as a wedge issue, do you just ignore the issue, fight back? What do you do? I think that you bring the conversation back to to the human level. Uh, You know, this country is a country of immigrants. My grandparents came from Ireland and from from Canada. Um, You know, unless if you're a Native American, you're an immigrant to this country. And I think that you bring it back to the most human terms. Why do people come to this country? They come seeking a better life, better jobs, safety, security, good education. They want stability and they want a better opportunity for their families. Um, In terms of sanctuary cities, you know, the federal government has a job to do in terms of their immigration control and By the way, I would argue that ICE is a problem not just along the border to the south, but it's a problem every day on the streets in the city of Lawrence and other cities where uh, immigrants that have come here to seek a better life live in constant fear that if they show up at a house of worship, show up at a school, show up, uh, you know, for a routinely scheduled visit to try to become a citizen, that they can be rounded up uh, and, you know, show up at their jobs can be rounded up and deported. And in fact, a 12-year-old girl, when I was visiting a school in Lawrence called Esperanza Academy, pulled me aside about a year ago and stated her very real fear that she was going to come home from school one day and her grandmother, who is her caregiver, was going to be gone. And no one should have to feel that way. That grandmother is not a threat to anyone. You use the term mom on a mission. What is that mission? Well, it can be a very different mission for many different people, Um, and we've had a number of my supporters do quick little videos about what their mission may be in life. Uh, For me, you know, my entree into politics was motivated by my son with autism, as I mentioned. Uh, You know, when he was born in 1990, uh, the incidence of autism was seen as 1 in 10,000. It's now less than 1 in 40. And, you know, there was uh, nothing in place when he was coming of age. There were no supports for him. The school system didn't know what to do with him. Uh, There were no uh, support groups. There was nothing for after school, for recreation, for socialization. I had to put all that together for him and in the process did so for many other kids in Massachusetts. So my mission of helping my son to, to create a school to get the Asperger's Association of New England up and running with others, to get support groups going, um, really turned into a mission that helped many other children well beyond my son. And then I entered politics uh, when he was 12 years old um, and decided that I would take my advocacy skills that I had honed to help him and make it my mission to help others. My, my very personal mission as a mom on a mission became a mission to help others in the House, then in the Senate, and now I'm hoping to take that mission of helping with health care, education, uh, civil rights, the environment, 
to Washington on behalf of the constituents that would be in the third congressional district. So, so that's my tagline, Mom on a Mission. It, it feels very comfortable to me. And many other people are on many other missions. And you don't have to be a mom to understand the value of what your own mother gave you, right? The values of patience and persistence and um, caring and kindness and compassion. All of those values are sorely needed right now in Washington, D.C. Looking at, you know, looking through the prism of values of people uh, rather than valuing money rather than valuing business, uh, you know, valuing people and quality of life and how we can help people at whatever age they are in the spectrum of life. Do you see using autism against vaccination programs as a problem? Using it against vaccination programs? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, a lot of the anti-vaxxers argue that vaccinations can cause autism. So mm-hmm. do you see it as a problem that they're using um, autism to be against vaccination? You know, I think it's a highly individual uh, situation. There are kids that have severely compromised immune systems. And so for those kids, there may have been extreme reactions uh, to some of the vaccines. I know when uh, some of the work I've done in the legislature There have been people that have come in showing us pictures of the extreme reactions their kids have had to vaccines. So, um, you know, I do believe that there are some kids who, uh, you know, we need to be very careful about in terms of vaccinations. We have to be very careful that their immune systems are not overloaded with multi doses of of vaccines to try to address a number of different um, ailments simultaneously. So for some kids, I do believe there needs to be some care and consideration given to the schedule for their vaccines. Do you favor mandatory vaccines? Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, you know, there are situations where I think that doctors uh, in consultation with families need to look at what's best for some kids that have compromised immune systems. But generally speaking, you know, I believe that most people benefit from having vaccines. It's really brought down the, um, you know, the onset and the spread of a number of, uh, a number of ailments. Many of them have been, um, you know, in, in developed countries, they've been able to bring an end to a number of things that used to cause great harm to people. Um, occasionally you see uh, some illnesses where they thought that a, a, a vaccine given just at, at a very young age would carry you through to adulthood. And in some cases, now they find that you need to have a re-up of your vaccination. So uh, in the case of measles, um, in the case of, um, oh gosh, what's the one you have to take before you go live in a dorm or live in college? Um, I can't think of the name of it, but my kids all had to do that. Um, MMR? Uh, yeah, not, not MMR, but there's the other one where you end up having inflammation of your spinal cord. Um, and you can, uh, meningitis, meningitis is another one where you really have to re-up and be sure that your body has the, um, you know, the ability to guard itself against meningitis. So, you know, I think what they find is that, uh, with, with all vaccines, they have to continue to check and see whether it, whether or not 
Um, the vaccine is going to carry you through your entire life, whether or not you're going to have to have that boosted at some point in your high school or college years. Um, you know, they now have uh, vaccines that didn't happen when I was a kid, right? Everyone got chicken pox when I was a kid. There's now a chicken pox vaccine. There's now a vaccine when you're later in life to try to guard against shingles. So, you know, I think the vaccines in general have done a tremendous amount of good and been able to protect a large number of people, um, particularly in the developing countries. I think it's still a real challenge in the uh, in the third world where many of these are not routinely available to children and young adults. So you don't think a child should be forbidden to go to school without vaccination? Um, as I said earlier, I think that that's something that has to be worked out in consult with the family and with the doctor if there is concern around a compromised immune system. But the vast majority of people, I believe, do end up getting vaccines. There are also, I believe, religious objections that you can uh, show um, in some states. Um, But yeah. So you're very concerned about affordable housing. How would you achieve that? Would you promote, say, setting aside units in... Mm -hmm. Um, new construction for affordable units, or would you support higher density zoning, which increases the supply of housing, but bothers people because it changes the character of a neighborhood? Um, I don't think there's any one approach that works in all situations. I just think you have to have the tools and the toolbox and the flexibility to be able to determine, um, you know, what housing is going to work. Um, I was the author of the piece of the housing bill that we had under consideration to allow for in-law and accessory apartments for, you know, aging seniors or if you have a family member, a child that has a disability um, and you want to be able to give them some measure of uh, independence but also be able to be right nearby and be able to assist them. So that piece of the housing bill that has gone around the state house for the last two sessions, that was mine. Um, I do think that we need to be, um, you know, flexible in terms of given communities and what might work in one community may not work in another. But, you know, I think there are a number of different tools we need to have in the toolbox to make it easier to build housing. In the city of Lawrence, which I represent, You know, we've done a good job of taking and converting a number of the old uh, brick factory buildings into really beautiful state-of-the-art housing, Uh, but not enough of those are are below market rate, not enough of those are affordable. And when you develop 70 units uh, and 500 people apply to live in those units, you know you have a problem. So so housing stock, um, but also helping not just creating housing stock, but creating a mechanism to help people rehabilitate and upgrade the existing housing is also something that we need to pay attention to as well. All right, you oppose charter schools, but in our area, the Marlboro Advanced Math and Science Academy Charter School has achieved very high marks and reviews on their teaching, which clearly shows the potential of charter schools to achieve excellence. What do you see as the problem with charter schools? And how do you improve public schools? Mm -hmm. Well, right off the bat, I would say that 
I've worked on this issue for the last 15 years as both a member of the Education Committee, uh, as a member of my Andover School Committee, um, and as a concerned advocate on behalf of folks with special needs. Generally speaking, over the years, what I have seen is that while you may be included in a charter school through a democratic process of uh, a lottery system, there are many children who are English language learners and or have special needs that are either counseled out of the school system or because of what I see in Lawrence, highly regimented and, uh, you know, uh, very difficult behavior code systems. Many people end up leaving uh, either in frustration uh, or being, you know, asked to leave the charter school. So uh, my experience, again, looking at the totality of charter schools in the state is very different from what you've described. Uh, I'm concerned about 100% of the students that need an education not the very small number of kids that are able to be fortunate enough to be chosen into a charter school and be able to uh, do very well there. I think that what we need is to have a much more aggressive funding system for public education, not just in this state, but in our nation. Charter schools were seen as a compromise back in 1993. Uh, rather than doing a voucher system, uh, charter schools were set up they were supposed to be seen as learning labs from which we would learn, uh, you know, new innovations, and that would tr that would that information would go back to the public school systems. I don't see much of that innovation flowing back to the public school systems. So the charter schools cherry pick; they take only the best kids and drain them from the public school systems. You know, that has been said that that is what happens. Uh, again, I can't fault those kids that choose to go to those schools. Um, in the city of Lawrence, what I see are the only kids that are able to get into the charter schools have to have, because of the expectations placed on parents, they have to have parents that are able to take a very active role, be able to volunteer, be able to be present. Um, you know, what I see on the ground in, in Lawrence uh, in one of the charter schools in particular is a school that's run like a military academy where kids are not allowed to take breaks. They are not allowed to talk to each other uh, when they are in line. Uh, they, are, they have prescribed times to use the bathroom and no, at no other time can they do so. Um, you know, I, I fail to see how that encourages creativity, collaboration, uh, critical thinking skills, all of the stuff, project-based learning, all of the things that are seen as uh, what needs to happen for a 21st century education so that people can, you know, go out and not just be great test takers on high-stakes testing, but rather be able to actually utilize the internet, uh, be able to access information, problem-solve, work as a group, and, you know, uh, be able to present uh, be good, strong writers, be good public speakers and presenters. Those are all the skills that I think are going to be needed in the 21st century. Uh, funding schools will require more tax money, and you want to repeal Trump's tax plan. What will you replace it with? Are there any elements of it that you like? Um, I would say the only thing that 
might be acceptable, and I don't know for certain, is the idea of empowerment zones was one thing that was suggested in the Trump tax plan. Uh, what they did was they allowed each state to apply for uh, some of the, you know, the, the um, lowest economic uh, areas in our state. So many of the cities in this district have qualified to potentially allow for some business development and some business in exchange for tax breaks. Uh, so it's definitely a trade-off. Unclear to me whether or not it's actually going to result in any real uh, economic development and any real job creation, uh, but that is something that our state went ahead and designated, and we will see what happens with that. In terms of the rest of it, I feel like it was really short-term gain in terms of a small boost in people's paychecks in exchange for long-term pain, blowing a much bigger hole into our deficit, benefiting only really the, the wealthiest top 1%. And my great fear is that this will be used as motivation to go after programs like uh, food assistance, um, like Medicare, Medicaid, those health insurance programs, uh, like going after Social Security uh, for seniors and SSI disability for those who have uh, you know, intellectual, developmental, and physical impairments and are disabled. Democrats have lost nearly 1,000 office seats in the last several election cycles. Is Nancy Pelosi's time up? I think that Nancy Pelosi is a skilled legislator who helped get the Affordable Care Act through during the Obama administration. I don't know many others who could have been able to do that. I think that people who asked for Nancy Pelosi to be replaced as the leader uh, of the House, some don't understand that whoever the speaker will be will have a target on their back. You know, we did it to Newt Gingrich. We did it. We do it to Paul Ryan, right? Um, you know, it's normal for the opposite party to attack and villainize whoever the leader is in the speakership and the and the uh, you know the the Senate Majority Leader. Um, on the other hand, I understand that people have concerns that maybe there ought to be new blood and younger leadership. Um, if there's concern about whether I would be willing to buck leadership, I will tell you that when I started in the House, my first vote was against Speaker Tom Finneran here in Massachusetts. When I knocked on doors, my district asked that I not support him, and I did not. Um, and more recently, when we had a Me Too moment with Brian Hefner, the husband of our Senate President, Stan Rosenberg, last December. I was the first and only person in the state Senate to request that he step aside and not be the Senate President as we did a very serious investigation into potential sexual harassment and assault of young staff people uh, that work in the, in the state house. So I was the first and only to stand up. Uh, our Senate President did step aside during that investigation, he was not the Senate president. Uh, I was concerned it would send a chilling effect among the victims involved in this, and they would be afraid to come forward. Um, and then subsequently, when that report was released, uh, and it was a pretty damning report, and many wanted to just let the Senate, uh, let the member of the Senate continue, and myself and a couple of other, uh, there were five state senators who 
thought that that person, Stan Rosenberg, ought to resign. And so I'm not afraid to step up and speak truth to power with leadership. Dante Alighieri once said, the hottest place in hell are reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. There are a large percentage of undecided voters. Why are they undecided? What do they need to sway them to your side? Given that there's a low voter turnout, is it easier to win over non-voters or win over Republicans? Well, for me, right now, the race before me, are you talking about in the congr- my congressional race? Yeah, in the mid yeah. Okay, so Republicans can't vote um, in a Democratic primary. They're not allowed. So the two options are you, uh, you know, work with, and engage in conversations with both Democrats and independents. But Republicans cannot cannot vote in the primary. They can, however, vote in the general election. Um, and there's certainly an opportunity to talk with and, uh, you know, sway those voters in November. Um, what I've been doing, you know, for almost a year, uh, because tomorrow will mark the one-year mark that Nikki Songus announced her retirement from Congress. I've been engaging with voters all over the 37 cities and towns. Um, you know, we have very high information voters that want to know a tremendous amount of information and very detailed information on many issues similar to yourself. And then we have the low information voters who are going to probably decide in the last week to 10 days prior to the election. They may be people who feel that It's their civic duty to vote in a primary, but they may not be tuned in because of summer, because of work, because of personal circumstances. So we have a real range of people, right? Um, What I try to say to people is the big differentiator between me and the other nine candidates, they're all wonderful people. They all have every right to be engaged in the democratic process. I think it's a high number of people this year motivated by the Trump presidency and wanting to be actively involved in politics. The huge difference between me and everyone else is that rather than just saying what I might do down in D.C., I can show at every step of the way what I have done. So I can show on civil rights that I have voted to fight for gay marriage when the eyes of the world were looking at Massachusetts in 2004, and it wasn't a popular thing to stand up for. And I did it and got kicked out of my Catholic church over it. You know, I can say that I've you know, voted to expand solar uh, and voted for progression of wind power and hydro and fought against the expansion of fossil fuels. I can say that I've done all of those things over the last 15 years. I can say that I've voted for the expansion of health care when it was seen as Romney care. I can say that I've voted to expand access to health care for seniors and for people who are low income. Um, So that is, in my mind, the big difference between me and everyone else. So that, in my mind, is the big difference between me and everyone else. And that's what I talk about with people uh, at every step of the way. Um, And that's sort of how we are persuading people one vote at a time. Again, be it on the doors in person, at my kitchen table, on the phone, through social media. Um, You know, we've... Uh, through my body of work and our op-eds and going on Fox and Friends, you know, all of the above are all, all ways in which I've tried to show that I'm fearless, I'm a leader, I am bold, I'm progressive, and that I 
you know, am the best prepared to take to hit the ground running on day one down in Washington D.C. So thank you so much for coming onto our show, and good luck for the primaries. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.